If you'll turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 13, we'll read there in a minute, 2 Corinthians in chapter 13. And before we do, I want you to imagine that you are traveling somewhere, say to Asheville, North Carolina. You're traveling to Asheville, North Carolina. Now, in the days before GPS, there were something a lot like GPS. You'd fold it up and put it in your pocket. It was called a map, and you would use maps to get places. And if you were a AAA member, like my mother was, you could actually, if you had a, a quite a trip, you could call AAA and they would send you directions. That actually give, it was the equivalent of GPS. It was a list. It was Google Maps. Google Maps used to be spelled AAA. You would call AAA and they would actually give you a, a turn by turn list of where you wanted to go. I remember my, my mother had a big trip home to Kentucky, and it was one of the first trips that my, my father wasn't going to be on as well, and so she was anxious to, they got this, this great detailed list of directions from AAA. So imagine you want to go to Asheville, North Carolina, but you don't know how to get there. So you call AAA, and they send you a list of directions. But then as you open up the envelope, there's, there's two sets of directions. Like maybe there was a mistake of some sort. And one set of directions says you want to head out west, generally, and after a while, you're going to turn a little north, and it's about two hours and 130 miles. And the other set of directions says you're going to head southeast, eh, the trip's going to be about 71 hours and you'll cover about 4,300 miles. Which one is it, right? I mean, which one? Those are two radically different sets of directions. And I'll tell you, if from this place, if you were to take one of them, you would arrive in the neighborhood of Asheville. And the others, you would actually land uh, someplace. I tried to find it on the map. Roughly, it's uh, Guinea-Bissau in Africa. Assuming your car can drive... On top of the water, like Herbie. If anyone ever seen Herbie did that, you know, you drive on top of the water. Because one of those directions is correct, right? And we all know which that might be. But actually, if we think only one of those directions is correct, we're wrong. Both of those directions are correct. Both of those instructions are correct, depending upon where you're leaving from. One is a set of directions to get to Asheville from Charlotte, North Carolina, and the other is a set of directions to get to Asheville from Anchorage, Alaska. It's not enough to know where you want to go. You have to know where you are. You have to know where you are now. Otherwise, the directions don't actually make any sense. And we see that reflected here in 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5. The Apostle Paul commends all of us, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you are disqualified? Now, we often think of self-examination as a, a pre-Passover activity, and it certainly is. It certainly is. 
Before Passover comes, we have an obligation to examine ourselves. We often make that connection because of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians in chapter 11. We won't turn there, uh, but, but we'll get to it eventually this year if we, if we haven't yet in our preparation for Passover season and, and examining ourselves. But it's not so much that examining ourselves is a once-a-year activity, and we shouldn't think of it that way. Rather, examining ourselves, think of it this way, is so important that God commends it to us explicitly every year at, before Passover so we don't forget. At that time, it absolutely is crucial. You don't want to, to go to the Passover and be unprepared. The Bible says that's not a wise thing to do. But think of it that way, that it's so important, it's such a vital part of a Christian life, that it's actually woven into the things that we do. We often ask, why are you here? It's one of my favorite questions. I, I actually don't get tired of it. You think I would, you know, but we don't. You know, we ask it a lot. You know, why are you here? It's one of the most important things you can reflect on, is why am I here? But if we don't ask the question, where am I? It's of questionable value. It's actually another very important question we should ask ourselves. Where am I? Where am I in my life? Where am I in my relationships with other people? Where am I in my relationship with God? What are my actual hopes and dreams and aspirations? What are my fears? What are my illusions, the things I'm holding on to that aren't actually real? And what is my reality? We have to know who we actually are. Where are we? You know, if you don't have a relatively good sense of who you are, if I don't have a relatively good sense of who I am, if you think about it, we, we, we say rightly so that God should be the center of our world. And spiritually, God should be the center of our world. But in terms of a very physical sense and how I come to understand the world, physically, who's at the center of my world? It's me, right? Everything around me is, is what surrounds me. And if I ever try to get away from that, the center of my world follows me, right? Because it's me. It's, it's, it's my perspective. Here's where I am. And if I don't understand properly the eyes through which I see the world, the ears through which I'm hearing the world, the mind, my mind, and how I'm processing the world, then all the world becomes to a certain extent and to a certain degree a deception to me. It becomes not true. Because as much as we like to think we're purely dependent on facts, all those facts get filtered by this thing we have in our noggin that God has given us to filter facts and to process facts. And if I don't really understand what's going on, I'm at great risk of self-deception. Examining ourselves is absolutely vital to the Christian walk. We all want to make it to the kingdom of God. Well, I don't know, maybe there's some here who don't. If not, have a good day. You know, you're in the wrong place because everyone's come here hoping to be a part of the kingdom of God and live forever and, and enjoy life in the presence of God, doing the things of God and the things that he wants us to do. But it's not enough to know where we want to go. We have to know from whence we start. We have to know the beginning place. and We have to know where we are. And I want to say we. I hope it's accurate, uh, we often don't give self-examination the kind of attention it really deserves. 
And the reason I want to be able to say we is not because I wish ill of all of you, because I want to feel better about myself. I don't always give self-examination the effort and the passion that it really deserves. And I just hope that I'm not alone. Otherwise, you've probably got some apps on your phone that you could play with or something. While I essentially just give a sermon to myself, it's something deserving of our best. It's deserving of our time. It's deserving of our, of our passions and our effort. And it can be a little scary. If you don't think that plumbing the very depths of who you are, good or bad, you know, if you don't think that's at least a little bit intimidating, I don't think you know yourself very well. Uh, you know, I, one of the examples that was, that I, I heard someone talk about once that really impacted me was the question. Let me ask you the question. I gotta ask myself the question. Were I in Germany, in World War II, and all of these things were happening around me uh, to the Jews, would I have behaved differently? Would I have been one to stand up and be bold and risk my life and say, this is wrong? I like to think I would. I like to think I would. But I have to admit, there were a lot of people in Germany with character, who were educated, who didn't do that. We need to be not so sure about ourselves and recognize that it's not an easy thing to understand who we are and where we actually are. And that's what I want to discuss today. I want to discuss the challenge and rewards of examining ourselves. And to do it rigorously, without compromise, without making excuses, just being completely open to the truth and seeing ourselves as God does. And the title of the sermon today is The Challenge and Blessing of Self-Honesty. The Challenge and Blessing of Self-Honesty. And I understand that words, when we use them over and over again, they sometimes do, we don't hear them anymore. And self-examination has a risk of being one of those words. And so I'll probably use it a lot myself because it's woven into our DNA in the church to talk about self-examination. But if it helps, I hope you'll think of it as self-honesty, as being honest with yourself, an obligation that we have. Really, when you look at the commandment, we're told in Exodus 20 to not bear false witness. You have an obligation not to bear false witness to yourself. Uh, you're included in that. Can we actually be honest with ourselves? We can. We absolutely can, but it's not necessarily easy. So the challenge and blessing of self-honesty. First, briefly, I'd like to discuss that it is a special challenge today. That is in 2020. And if for some reason someone's hearing this sermon later in 2021, it's sure it's a challenge there too. But in the modern day, it's a, it's a real challenge. In particular, it's prophesied to be a challenge, I would dare say. If you turn to Revelation in chapter 3. Revelation in chapter 3. Coming to see ourselves honestly is difficult. And we see that in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, 
various eras of the church are depicted. And really, if you, if you read it carefully, they're letters to the churches. They're letters to particular churches and groups of people that represent the dominant spirit in that age. So it doesn't mean everyone in every age fits that description, but it does mean it's the dominant description of most of the church at that particular time. It's an era of dominance for a particular uh, church, if you will, a, a certain approach. And it says here, speaking of the last era of the church, the Laodicean era, beginning in verse 14, Jesus Christ says, To the angel of the church of the Laodiceans write, These things says the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I could wish you were cold or hot. One or the other. Right, one extreme or the other. He's saying, I could do something with that. But you're right smack dab in between at lukewarm. Verse 16. So then, because you're lukewarm and neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Because you say, I'm rich, have become wealthy, and have need of nothing, and do not know that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he tells them, I counsel you to buy gold, uh, buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich, white garments that you may be clothed. The shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And anoint your eyes with salve that you may see, because you're not seeing anything right now. There are things that I've allowed to be right in front of your face that you're not seeing. We often talk about how one of the dominant Aspects of the final era of the church is a lukewarmness. But understand, it's not the only thing we're warned about. One of the dominant characteristics of the final era of the church is an inability to see itself rightly. To see itself through the eyes of reality, through a lens of reality, the way that God actually sees it. And it's... It's easy sometimes to depend on labels and to think, well, if, if I look at my spiritual name tag, it says, hello, my name is Wally. I'm a Philadelphian, right? You know, I can look down at the name tag and be comfortable with that. Well, no, I'm, I got the name tag, right? I mean, it says right there, I'm a, I'm a Philadelphian. I, I don't belong in, in this group of people. And yeah, you know, perhaps that's true. Hope, I hope it's true of most of us that we are. But the one thing I like to highlight and I hope, I know it's helped my mindset, is to remember that not only were these cities on a, a mail route, that is the seven cities of Revelation chapters 2 and 3, but the fact that they were on a mail route means there was a road running between them to and fro. And no one's forced to live in Philadelphia. No one's forced to live in Laodicea. We can repent and we can change or we can degrade. Uh, we, our character can lessen if we're not careful. The person who's on fire on Tuesday can be lackadaisical on Wednesday. Hopefully not that fast. But still, that we have the ability to change. It's not like, well, you know, I'm going to the right church. I'm hearing all the right messages and therefore I'm blank. I don't know about you, but... I change over time. I don't always feel on fire. I don't always feel lackadaisical. And we do need to examine ourselves all the more understanding that this is, according to God, the dominant spirit of the age. The dominant spirit of the age. And the idea that somehow I've been given some kind of inoculation that says Philadelphia that's going to protect me from the dominant spirit of the age 
tells me, why does God have to have a warning in here? Why don't we all just cut that part out of our Bible and just leave the warning to Philadelphia? I would say warnings are for all of us. All of us could stand to take a look at these and make sure we understand. There's other passages of the Bible that warn us. Uh, The Apostle Paul says, Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. That's in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse 12. Now, let's test ourselves real quickly. Does that warning apply to me? Well, if I'm currently falling and stumbling and I'm aware of it, well, I'm currently falling and stumbling and I'm aware of it, so perhaps it doesn't apply to me. Let's say, well, no, I'm not. I'm actually standing. I'm, I'm standing firm. I'm standing strong. Well, then the warning applies. He said, let him who thinks he stand, lest heed... Uh, Sorry, take heed lest he fall. In other words, if we're confident in our spiritual state, then the Apostle Paul says, you know, hello, but I'm talking to you. If you're really confident that you're standing, that's wonderful. I hope it's true, he says, but take heed. Take heed because you need to be careful of falling. Actually, there's another famous teaching. Let's turn to Luke chapter 21. Luke 21. And let me admit, as we do, to another human failing that hopefully, I say hopefully we all share. makes it sound like I want you all to be terrible people uh, to make me feel better. But hopefully it resonates with you in some kind of way because otherwise it means here's a warning Christ has given that we're not paying attention to. I think one of the worst ways to read the warnings of the Bible is to read them from a perspective that we just think they're for other people. That they're only for other people. Because that means if there's anything there I need to learn, I'm not going to. I'm just going to sit back like an observer and wait somehow for other people to pick up what they need to understand. In Luke chapter 21, starting in verse 34, Jesus Christ says, take heed to yourself. There's that phrase, take heed. It means turn your attention to. You know, point your face toward this so that you're paying attention to it. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and cares of this life. And that day come upon you unexpectedly. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. Now, it's easy to simply read this passage and think of watching the signs. And we do need to watch the signs. Uh, hopefully, you uh, have seen Mr. Ames's recent telecast on seven signs of the second coming. It's doing really well, in my understanding, actually. It's done phenomenally in terms of responses online on YouTube. Best I can tell, watching it, it seems to be doing really well. But hopefully, it's not just people viewing it. Hopefully, they're paying attention. And we do understand. We don't water that down. We should be watching for signs. But if you look at what Jesus Christ is trying to impress on people in this passage, it's about trying to make sure we're worthy, trying to make sure we're in a proper place with God when that time comes. Not just watching for the signs, but watching ourselves, understanding ourselves, taking heed to us. You know, going back to verse 34, it says, Take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing. Now, you might think, I'm not a carouser. You know, I look down on carousers. When I see carousing on Facebook, I close the app, right? No carousing for me. Uh, you know, perhaps that's the case for you. Or drunkenness. 
It's like drunkenness, absolutely not. You know, I'm not going to be a party to that. I'm not going to do that. I say if anyone here is partaking in drunkenness, you absolutely need to repent. The Bible's filled with admonitions about where the drunken go. And it's not that they're celebrated in the kingdom of heaven. Uh, It's that they're forgotten as the rest of us move on and enjoy eternity. Uh, And it also doesn't count as not drunkenness if it's just not in front of other people. Uh, I know some people think, well, if I just go home and nobody's watching... It's Miller time, you know, and all of a sudden yeah, I can drink all I want, you know, as long as I'm... Well, no, it's a, it has to do with your mind. What are you doing? Are you really imitating God's mind in that space? Or are you abandoning your obligation to reflect God uh, because somehow you're alone? You're never alone. Jesus Christ is in the room. God is in the room. Are they looking forward to you getting blotto, you know, for the rest of the evening until you fall asleep? But still you might think, well, no, carousing, drunkenness, that's not me. I'm in good shape. And then, at least for me personally, I get to cares of this life. And I think, ooh. Well, it's easy again to think that that's just partying and stuff, right? It's just that. But honestly, the cares of this life can be, well, the cares of this life. I mean, we've got deadlines to meet. We've got things to do. We've got people that depend on us. We have babies that aren't going to change their own diapers, right? I mean, it'd be a miracle, and we'd thank God for it for the rest of our lives if that happened, but it doesn't happen, right? We have kids to take to soccer practice. We have parents, perhaps, that are older now, and we have to take care of them. And these are cares of this life, but they're not bad, but they're also not the top priority. They're not the thing that should be taking us away from the thing that is far more fundamental in terms of a relationship with God. And I know when I come across the words cares of this life, I find that I enter a realm in my own life where it's very easy for me to make excuses. It's very easy for me to put off the things that self-examination might want to show me with a but this or but that. Prophecy assures us that all over the world today, if you understand the era in which we live, all over the world today, there are men and women sitting in Sabbath services, listening to a sermon, or watching a video, and they fit the description of Laodicea. They are absolutely clueless about the truth of their spiritual state. And I can't say I'm not, I can't say that I'm saying that, I'm not saying that to scare you, because I am, I want to scare you just a little bit, is to take heed and to think, you know, I don't want to take for granted that that's not me. I don't want to think, well, you know, I know the way our, the corporate church is designed, and uh, I'm at services in the living church of God, so I'm good. Again, let he who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. This is the day and age where God seeks to characterize the church with the words that they need ISAV because they can't see. And so let's never take it for granted. But that said, let's also not take for granted that it's easy. I like to talk about why it's hard. It is hard to examine ourselves. If we think it's easy, we, there's several things we don't really understand. Our natural state, that is just given our carnal bodies and, and the human spirit, not, not God's spirit, but our human self, our natural state is to be ignorant of ourselves in the most significant ways. Now, you might know yourself in a lot of ways. I, I know myself. I actually uh, went to have a beer I don't have a lot of beers. The history of my family uh, is one that doesn't encourage one to actually drink beer. And I kind of miss it. I, I wish that I see guys having a beer and I'm sitting there with, you know, water or something. Think, oh, you know, it would be nice to be able to have one. So I was finally offered a beer I was able to really enjoy because it tasted like peanut butter and jelly. 
seems like that's against the laws of nature, right? You know, for beer to taste like peanut butter and jelly, but I did. I had a whole five ounces. It was very nice. Uh, why did I bring that up? Uh, so I know that about myself. In fact, the moment I saw it on the menu, and I saw and it said peanut butter and jelly, and I said, does this beer really taste like peanut butter and jelly? I knew myself well enough to go, give me those five ounces. You know, I want to try that. You know, I'm going to enjoy that. But if I think that just because I know that, that somehow I know myself deeply and thoroughly, that I can somehow understand myself as, as thoroughly as God does, or even if I back off and think that I know myself thoroughly enough, thoroughly enough to be able to figure out what I need to do and where I'm going, then there's some things I don't understand. One of my favorite passages, and I have often overused it in the past, I've tried to back off a little bit, but it's the one that says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked or sick. Who can know it? It's Jeremiah 17 and verse 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Again, or sick is a better translation. Who can know it? You know, think of the greatest liar in the world you've ever known. Maybe not known personally. Maybe you don't know any liars. Hats off. Uh, but maybe think of someone in the world, someone in politics. Gives us a lot of choices there, right? Think of someone who's the greatest liar that you think deserves the crown. Man, king of liars. That's this guy. And then remind yourself the natural state of your heart. And my heart is described here in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things. No one whispers to you the things you want to hear or sometimes the things you don't, depending upon the mood you're in, perhaps, like your heart. No one is more capable of causing you to think of reality as other than it is than your heart. Now, that was Jeremiah 17. Let's actually turn to Jeremiah chapter 10. We'll come back to Jeremiah 17 later, but Jeremiah chapter 10 And verse 23. Jeremiah 10 and verse 23. A very blatant statement that I hope we all accept. Jeremiah writes, O eternal, I know, this is verse 23, O eternal, I know the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man who walks to direct his own steps. We're not good at it. The, the way we should go is not a part of who we naturally are at all. Not at all. We're hard to understand. We're complicated. It's actually a quote. I'm a, a kind of a Jordan Peterson fan. He doesn't understand everything. I wish he was sitting here in the church. And he's not. But he does understand a lot. Uh, and I, I think some of his insights in terms of psychology have actually been fascinating. And one of the things that, that he said, this is, uh, Jordan Peterson, said, Human beings are unbelievably complicated. And we're nested in systems that are also unbelievably complicated. There are more patterns of connections between neurons in your brain than there are subatomic particles in the universe. By the way, I haven't checked that, but it sounds pretty plausible. Can't help it. Now I want to get a calculator and check it. I haven't done that yet. But he says, the probability that you can understand yourself in anything approaching totality is extraordinarily low. And he's saying that just from his clinical experience. How many people come into to talk to him? How many clients has he had 
when it's obvious they're so clueless about themselves. That's part of his job is to help them understand themselves. Many of us, surely if you reflect on your own experience, you've known someone in your life that you recognize everyone understands that Bob's ceiling wall has a problem. There's no such person as Bob's ceiling wall. If I ever meet someone with that name, I'm going to have to change my default, uh, you know, generic person. But everyone, everyone around him, we try to tell him, Bob's ceiling wall, you have a problem. You've got an issue. Or maybe it's a gift. Bob Sillingwall, you have a gift. You've got a talent. It's remarkable what you can do, regardless. And Bob Sillingwall just doesn't see it. And it's just, we don't understand. Why doesn't he see it? Do we think Bob Sillingwall is unique? No, he's human. He's human. And it's hard to see things about ourselves. It's not easy. We are subject to forces and such that we often have no idea are working on us. We're subject to influences. We have no idea are influencing us. One of the things I appreciate that Mr. Weston focuses on when he's talking to younger people, and I'm sure it's difficult because you hear the same thing, you start to tune it out, but it's so true, and I'm so sympathetic to his desire to press it upon them, is that they, and I would say all of us, but in his messages talking to younger people, they probably don't appreciate how much they're being influenced by the world around them, that they don't give it a fraction of the credit it deserves. And I would say that's true of all of us. All of us are influenced to a greater degree than we tend to think that we are. I can think of my own experience as a younger person, and I remember as an older person getting to find it out explicitly, and I may have used this example before, but it involves Mr. Pibb. Uh, There was a time when I really decided... Yeah, I like Mr. Pibb. You know, why do I like Mr. Pibb? I'll tell you why I like him. This is me, like, at 15 or 16 or 17. Here's why I like Mr. Pibb. You know, I don't see a lot of people drinking it, you know, so I'm kind of different than everybody else. It was in Texas. It was pretty much Dr. Pepper everywhere, you know, so you're kind of... Mr. Pibb was created by Coca-Cola to compete against Dr. Pepper, if you're not aware of the, the cola history. But anyway, they had this cool can, too. It wasn't smoothly round like most aluminum cans. It had facets, about 30 or so. Uh, so it had these kind of ridges. And when you, it's like this can is different than everybody else's, right? You know what that means? I'm different than everybody else. Now, did I actually think those thoughts? No, that would really be problematic if I was actually, oh, this can means I'm different. But as an adult, I've been able to look back. And recognize that is what I thought. That is part of the joy. When that, when it would drop out of the machine and roll out and I see this multifaceted can, it's like different, just like me, right? Well then as an adult, I'm studying marketing and such and I find this, this uh, discussion from Coca-Cola. This is official. This is actually their, this was their little description of their marketing strategy during that time with Mr. Pibb. And what did they say? They gave it this multifaceted can because they knew it would appeal to young people who want to feel different and want to feel special and just somehow set apart from everyone. Now, at the time, I didn't realize I was, I'm making a young person decision based upon the decisions of actually 60 and 70 year old men. I had been manipulated, but I didn't recognize that. But here's what I I hope we all understand. Just because we survived puberty and we've reached, I'm about to turn 50 in March, we've reached our 50s, our 60s, our 70s, doesn't mean we've become any less complicated. Doesn't mean that somehow we're no longer susceptible to influences. If anything, if the devil has to work harder, don't you think he's working harder? For me, I was easy. I throw him a can. He'll be sucking that sugar water, you know, for, you know, for the next however many years. But don't you think he steps up his game if it's harder? 
You know, if you combine these things, you combine Jeremiah 17.9's self-deception and you combine, uh, throw in Jeremiah 20, uh, 10.23's ignorance about ourselves, then I think you kind of get what's in Proverbs 16. Turn to Proverbs 16. Proverbs 16. And again, it's so easy to think of these verses as verses that apply to other people. If it would help for me to get on my knees and beg all of us to think differently about that, I would, but I I doubt that it will. Plus, like I said, I'm turning 50. I'm not sure I'd be able to get back up and and come to the lectern. But Proverbs chapter 16 and verse 2. Verse 2. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. But the eternal weighs the spirits. Don't we all think we're right? I mean, really? Don't we all think we're right about the things we think? In fact, I dare say, if you didn't think you were right about the things you believe, go get help, right? Go talk to Dr. To Dr. Scott, right? If you, if you think, oh, no, I'm wrong. I'm wrong about everything. In fact, let me give you an opinion. It's totally wrong, right? Why, why, well, that doesn't make any sense. Most of us are pretty sure we're right. Ignoring the fact that we disagree with each other on so many different things. And the odds that somehow I'm the one that's 100% right on everything, regardless of how I'm sure I came across to my wife in the first 20-something years of our marriage, uh, I'm not right about everything. Now, it's easy to say that behind the lectern. It's harder to say that when something I care about is on the line or I'm talking about someone's perception of me or I've been challenged with a disagreement, it's suddenly a lot harder to fathom the idea that I might be wrong about something. And the fact that it's important to me doesn't guarantee that I'm right. The way all this is speaking of carnal people, right? Because it talks about how the eternal can make a difference. We'll get to that. But if it's saying all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes, is there anyone here who thinks that somehow... The physical me or the physical you, this doesn't apply to me. Or Jeremiah 17, 9, that the heart is deceitful above all things. You know, even apart from God's spirit, that verse doesn't apply to me. It's just not me. Is there anyone of us who think that? Because if so, it's like an invitation for God to take us out to the woodshed a little bit. Because he needs us to understand this. You know, there's a, a King Solomon wrote something. I was surprised this morning as we were talking about it in the living room. King Solomon once wrote, truly, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, they go to the dead. That's the most Debbie Downer verse I think I've ever seen, you know, in the Bible. That is that is a buzz kill, right? You're having a nice party with friends. You say, hey, everybody, I just want to stop by and say, you know, truly the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil. Madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that, well, they die. Oh, those hors d'oeuvres look good. Can I go ahead and have one, right? It is not a happy verse. If you haven't actually listened to Mr. Rod McNair's sermon about the book of Ecclesiastes that he gave really a number of weeks ago, it's, it's fantastic. It really helps you get a perspective on the book and understand where Solomon was coming from. I guess what surprised me this morning is I was reading it, and then my son Jonathan started reciting it as I read it. And he goes, oh, yeah, Ecclesiastes 9.3. Yeah, that's a good one. It's like, wow, have you memorized the whole Bible? That's crazy. And he hadn't. But, you know, like me, that verse grabbed him like, 
Oh, that's a real winner. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna remember that one. So anyway, it's, it's Ecclesiastes nine three where that is. Now sometimes Solomon could be the mayor of Bummertown. That's very true. But while his language is dramatic, he's expressing a truth. He's trying to express a truth there. That if you're taking God's perspective and watching humanity, and I dare say we're still a part of humanity, everybody's kind of crazy just a little bit. You know, you just see irrational things being done. How many people would watch a television program, maybe a documentary on the terrible things that smoking does to you, and the terrible ways in which most people who smoke die, and will sit there smoking while they're watching. And if we think that somehow we're immune to those kind of irrationalities, we haven't lived with ourselves for very long. It's just part of the human condition. Here, reference to Ecclesiastes. Let's actually turn to another verse in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. And we'll get another pronouncement from the mayor of Bummertown. Ecclesiastes chapter 7. Imagine standing around Solomon in his heyday. He said, hey, you know, sire, just so you know, uh, someone's having a party, you know, over there in, uh, at so-and-so's house. You know, they're, they're celebrating their son's achievement, and it just sounds like it's going to be great. You want to go? And Solomon's saying, you know where you want to go? The house of the dead. That's where you want to go. It's like, wow. Okay, you're the king. I guess I better go. Next thing you know, you're just walking around the funeral home. I wish I could go to a party. Um, But he has a point to make. In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, starting in verse 2, he says, Better to go to the house of mourning than go to the house of feasting, for that is the end of all men, and the living will take it to heart. What does he mean? It doesn't mean you can't have a party. It doesn't mean next time Charlotte family weekend, we're all going to host it at the funeral home down the road and that's it. It doesn't mean you can't have a good time. What he's saying is that there's something about the time of mourning, the place of mourning that wakes you up if, if good things are to happen to you, that wakes you up to think about things differently, recognizing this is my end too. I remember the first time it hit me just like that. I was asked to be a pallbearer in my step-grandmother's funeral. And I'm just sitting there amongst the pallbearers and some Baptist fellows kind of going on about how, you know, I guess I'm going to be living in heaven and rolling around, you know, for the rest of eternity and the rest. And and I remember, that's not true, by the way, if you're new. That's not true. We have a booklet about that. You need to read Your Ultimate Destiny. But still, all the more, I was sitting there and it really hit me. I'm not getting younger Every year that comes by, it's not subtracted from my age. It's added to my age. And I don't know if I'm going to walk out bearing this coffin and a plane land on me or something like that. I can literally guarantee nothing. I have a family to care for. I have, have things I've wanted to achieve. I have a God that I don't feel close enough to yet. And you just don't think those kinds of thoughts at parties. Right? Hey, it's great music, you know. I sure wish I were closer to God. Right? It just doesn't tend to happen. And that's what he's saying. That as human beings, we need to be woken up. And he's saying it's times of seriousness that tend to do that. It puts all the distractions that kept us from examining ourselves. And this world is increasingly full of those distractions. It sort of puts them in their place. And gives us room to see things we should Why don't we do that enough? Not go to funeral homes. Why don't we examine ourselves deeply enough? Why don't we take the time to ponder these things? We'll talk about perhaps a few reasons, but one thing I will like to highlight, because I know it was true of me, 
is that honestly, it's a little scary. It can be intimidating. And I don't just mean because it's always bad things. That's one thing I, I hope. It's, it's sort of a side point, but I think it's a point that's, that's important to get across. Examining yourself is not just about finding all the dead dog dirty deeds about your life. Now, if you don't find any dead dog dirty deeds, you're probably not looking enough, right? There are going to be some. There's going to be mistakes that you and I are making. There's going to be things that we are, that we don't realize we're doing wrong and that we need to know that God can show us so we can repent. It's also about finding good things, perhaps. I know people. You know, people, I know people, what a dumb thing to say. I know many people, of the people I know, many of them are unwilling to recognize some of their talents, are unwilling to recognize some of the gifts that God has given them to help other people. And that's just as damaging because it means we're not seeing ourselves accurately. Someone who doesn't recognize they have a gift for something is often someone who's not using that gift to its fullest to honor God with. And serve other people with. And so it's, it's self-examination. Think of it of the word exam. When uh, your professor or your teacher gives you an exam. If it comes back to him and you've missed every problem in the exam. It's like, oh, that was the purpose. My whole goal was to show this person he's an idiot. So I want to make sure he missed every problem on the exam. If that's your class, get another class, right? No one should be trapped in a terribly abusive uh, classroom like that. But let's say you get your exam back after it's been graded and you made an 85. Well, what does that mean? That means you've mastered 85% of the material and 15% of the material you haven't. An exam, the purpose of an exam is to help you understand where you are clearly in an objective way. Not that you think you understand everything or you think you don't understand things, but to let you know here's the reality. If you made a 25 on the exam, you got a lot of work to do, right? If you made a 95 on the exam, that's great. Don't sit on your, don't rest on your laurels though. Work on that 5% and build on the 95% that you have uh, done well with. The purpose of self-examination is not just to beat ourselves up. It's to see ourselves the way God sees us to the fullest extent that we can. But the problem is with our deceitful heart, it tends to push us towards the positive. We're often far more willing, more often than not, but more willing to accept good things, judging ourselves based on our intentions, and not see the things we truly need to change, actually examining our actions. But even with that in mind, it shouldn't be scary. I turn to Psalm 103. Let's talk about that briefly. Examining yourself should not be scary for a number of reasons. Psalm 103. We read this of God. There's so many beautiful things in many of these psalms. I'm I'm just going to focus on a little bit for the sake of time, but I hope you'll explore these things. Psalm 103 and verse 11. We'll start there. We read, for as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father pities his children, so the eternal pities those who fear him. 
Now, before we move on, understand the word pities can seem very negative, but it's not meant to be negative. You can actually look at other translations, even this same Hebrew word in other verses. And it, it's, it's often translated mercy, uh, that as a father has mercy towards his children. Or compassion. Compassion is a very common translation in other translations. As a father has compassion on his children, so the eternal has compassion on those who fear him. That he's not looking for a reason to just disown you or kick you out of the family. But he has compassion for all of us. The next verse, verse 14 says, he knows our frame. He remembers that word dust. That yes, he wants us to grow into the fullness of Jesus Christ day by day, moment by moment. And is pouring himself and his son is pouring himself into that effort in us. But he recognizes you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. He knows that. There's no need to be fearful in examining ourselves. In trying to line up with how God actually sees us. That's part of what we have to recognize. He already sees it. Whatever it is. He's already aware. And we can be honest with ourselves. If you'll turn to Romans chapter 5, another passage that encourages me in examining myself. Remember a couple of times in some of the best self-examinations the type that just kind of slaps you in the face and you weren't expecting it. It's a little difficult to, to take them, but you have to be ready for it. You have to have a mindset that, that wants to hear it. And I've had a few moments like that. I remember, uh, I think I've told one recently, I won't repeat that one again, but one maybe I've told longer ago, was when I was, I was doing some meditating and reflecting, and we'll talk about that as one of the tools. Before we wrap up, we'll get to that. But as I was, I was doing some meditating and reflecting, and I was thinking actually about a guy that I knew uh, back in high school. He's actually a really nice guy. What I'm going to say sounds terrible, but part of the message should be that it isn't, he wasn't terrible. Uh, he was a real nice guy. He's actually really successful. He's a, uh, uh, last I saw, he's actually a, a author of some popular young adult, you know, fiction and such. Actually writes for some comic books too. Uh, very, he's doing pretty well. That said, young adults, you may think, man, you know, this, this book sure as well. Yes, yeah, probably written by a guy my age. Just so you know. So keep that, keep that in mind. But anyway, I remember I was reflecting on him in our time in high school and I, uh, this is gonna sound really strange, but this is how the thought developed in my head. I remember picturing him. I don't, I wish I could say why. I can't remember why. But say he was on a beach, walking on a beach and just picking up a rock and throwing it into the water. And I remember thinking, you know, that guy, I liked him and everything, but if he did that, you know why he'd do that? Because that's what you're supposed to do when you're on a beach. Not because he's a person of depth, right? Because he's a shallow person, and that's what he cares about, right? Is that he's he's doing what people would expect him to do. Well, you know, people are looking at me. What would a deep guy do? Oh, that's what he'd do. He'd pick up a rock and throw it on the ocean and look at it as it went out for a while. And then, like just being slapped in the face by a wet towel... It hit me. You can say that about him, but that's you. That's you. What are you picking on him for? That's you. And I remember where I was. I was in College Station, Texas. I was still finishing my degree. And I was baptized, and that does make a difference. It makes a difference having God's Spirit to help. And I just was woken up 
to my own uh, hypocrisies, my own shallowness in places. And, and I didn't like it. I wanted to shut that door as fast as possible. Forget that. I was writing things down. I was like, well, I'm not going to start writing anymore. I don't, I'm not here to think about myself. I'm here to condemn other people that I know that are not as good as I am and all the rest. And it hit me, no, that that's me. That's me. And then suddenly you don't feel worthy. You know, it's like you're so enraptured at first. Well, of course God called me. Look at me. Um, I got this and I got that. And next thing it's like, well, great. Me and the Pharisees, a bunch of hypocrites, right? You know, why did God call me? And then we have to remember that he didn't call us because of how stellar we were. He remembered we were dust when he did the calling. He majors in working with dust, if you will. In Romans chapter 5, when did he choose to give everything for us? It was when we were in that unforgiven state. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6. For when we were without strength in due time... Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now you might think you're off the hook because you weren't born in 31 AD. Well, I wasn't there, you know, when he died. And yet there's a reason this is recorded in the present tense. Because we have to recognize that you and me, Christ didn't choose to die for us because we were all that, if you will. Christ didn't choose to die for us because we were already on the way to righteousness and we just needed that extra boost. He chose to die for us while we were still filling your noun, you know, pond scum or, or just getting by but failing more often than we're succeeding. That's when he chose to make the sacrifice, to give everything he could possibly give. You know, for an ever-living being, the most you can give is life, is you give it all. And he did. There was nothing about us that deserved it. It's just that he loved us. But then understand, he did that not so he would stay there, so he could rescue us from that and begin investing in us to make us better bit by bit. But if we don't see the need to grow and be better, then we don't embrace that help he's providing so easily. If you're intimidated by the idea of examining yourself, I'd encourage you to listen to a sermon from about a year ago by Mr. Ames called Your Identity and Calling. I think he's given Mr. Ames more than one message on terms of your Christian identity, and I've always found it encouraging Understanding who you are in Christ, it should be encouraging because we should be emboldened to do these things. In fact, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4, and towards the end of the chapter, we'll start in verse 14. We read here, seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the son of God, let us hold fast our confession for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are yet without sin. 
regardless of what you or I may discover in our self-examination day by day, there's not a thing you and I can find that he won't sympathize with that. That he won't think, well, well, you're a dirty speck and just thump us out of his family. But no, things he'll respond to and say, yeah, I already knew that. That's why I died and live now to work in you, to take you by the hand and lead you forward. There's not a need to be afraid of doing that. Then he continues, verse 16, therefore, uh, sorry, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, it's often easy to picture this boldness before the throne as simply being for trials that we're in. Well, God, they're about to take my house away. Or God, it's been a year and I, I, can't, I can't find a job. I can't support my family. And think of this verse as encouraging us to be bold before God and to ask for those things in faith. And don't get me wrong, that is a part of this boldness. We have times of need in which we need help. It's not saying that, but if you look at the context of these passages, it also includes this idea to obtain mercy. The context is that we're going before God and that while our, our sins are the things we discover in our self-examination that might want to keep us down. If you're young, you know you've got them. David talks about them. You know, he talks about it. In his song, we sing the sins and faults of youth, right? We've all got them. I wish there's a lot of acorns I planted in my youth. That I wish I hadn't, because now that the oak trees I have to cut down at 49, I wish I'd just go back to my 13 to 18. It's like, just cut it out. What are you doing? But it's too late. You know, I done did it. But I can still go before God boldly, he says. I don't have to let that make me timid. But go boldly before that throne and ask for that grace and ask for help to chop down. God, I'm willing to cut it down, but make every swing worth two swings. You know, help that axe to bite. You know, help to make it sharp because I want that tree cleared in my life. Because it's not a tree that you wanted to be there in the first place. We can go boldly and we don't have to fear. We don't have to be afraid. Dive in. And as you dive in, and as I dive in, to examine ourselves, God has given us a lot of tools that we can take advantage of. He hasn't just said figure out how to do it. He's actually given us things. And as we wrap up in the last portion of the sermon, I want to review those really quickly. It won't take long because surely none of them are going to be a surprise, at least not a big surprise. Tools that God has given us. One that he has given us for examining ourselves, a tool he's given us is prayer. Just simple prayer, praying to God. You know, if we're not actively inviting God to help us see ourselves on a regular basis, we're fools because we can't do it on our own. We need his active help. How many of us will ask God to help? Help me find a job, God. Help me grow in the skills I need. Help me feed my family. Help me find a few thousand dollars to fix my plumbing. We'll ask God for those things. And you know what? Those things are easier to achieve than understanding ourselves accurately. How much more should we ask him for that kind of help? God, help me in your mercy. <laughs> I've often qualified that. I know when I ask, at least. In your mercy, the stuff I'm ready to see that won't just cause me to drop dead on the spot, help me to see the things about me that I need to see. And he will answer that. You know, in Psalm 19, the Psalms are such a gift to Christians. 
Because they're really a peek into a converted mind. And King David understood that he didn't fully understand. King David understood that King David was potentially in some ways a mystery to him. And that he didn't see everything he needed to see. And we see in Psalm 19, and as one thing of many prayers that David offered to God. We see in Psalm 19 and verse 12. He talks to God and says, Who can understand his errors? Cleanse me from secret faults. King David recognized there were faults he had that he did not understand and wasn't even aware of. You know, it's funny sometimes you do marriage counseling or something with a couple uh, or family counseling and someone will say, look, I know I'm a difficult person or I know I can be hard to live with and you recognize as the person says it, they don't know. They don't know the depth of how hard it is to live with that person. They don't understand the depth of the sacrifices made by other people to keep that family member in the family. And David recognized that. He said, cleanse me from secret faults. He asked God's active help and participation. Uh, We'll save a little time and turn straight to Psalm 139. But as I do, I do want to make sure I comment on Jeremiah 17.9. We're going to Psalm 139. But I quoted Jeremiah 17:9 earlier when I said the heart is, de- is uh, uh, deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It's verse 10 that gives the answer. The eternal ways of the hearts. How do we get past Psalm? I mean, sorry, Jeremiah 17:9 is by going to verse 10. The eternal tests the hearts. He weighs the hearts. He can give us the information we need. But we're going to Psalm 139. And there's this marvelous passage explaining how, how God knows him. And David finds wonder in this fact, how thoroughly God knows him. Starting in verse 1, he prays to God, O eternal, you have searched me and known me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. There's not a word on my tongue. But behold, O eternal, you know it all together. He knows it before you've said it. It says, verse 5, you've hedged me behind and before and laid your hand upon me. That is, the God of all things has deigned to actually personally involve himself in David's life. And he says in verse 6, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. The idea that the creator of all things, omniscient, omnipresent, right? That he, the omnipotent one, is actually involved in little old David. It's something that he can barely comprehend. He says in verse 16, he says, Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written, the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. God knows us thoroughly, thoroughly. Nothing about you or me is a mystery to him. He's never going, well, I wonder why he did that. I just don't get Mike DeSimone. <laughs> want to pick on ones you know could take it. You know, I just don't understand that guy. No, he knows. He knows. And he's the ultimate source of what we need to know. And David takes advantage of that to pray what I call a scary prayer. There are scary prayers you can pray. And this is one I think is a little bit scary. David 
says toward the end of the chapter, knowing all of this, knowing how God knows him, verse 23, he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. That means test me and know my anxieties and see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, I remember reading that and being nervous about it. Because I saw David as a good example of someone praying to God and, and, and what a converted man would want in that relationship. And I saw this, and I, I'll be honest, I didn't, I didn't want to pray that. Because tests, I mean, I've known people going through very terrible tests, right? All of us have. And I didn't want one of those. So I'd come close, and I'd kind of hedge this, in your mercy, you know, this and that. And then I remember a particular moment, and uh, it wasn't a brown couch in this case, it was a green one. And I remember realizing, you know what, I need to know. I, need, I, I don't understand myself enough. I need to see myself the way God does. And I, and I did pray that. And thankfully, at least so far, this was years and years ago, it's not like all of a sudden, you know, the car blew up, you know, or something, or I was you know, uh, diagnosed with some terrible disease. But at the same time, we recognize the stakes are high. And we want God to have the freedom he needs in our life to show us these things, and so we should ask. So prayer is a vital key to knowing ourselves because if we want the one who knows us best to reveal anything to us at all, we need to ask. And so prayer is a key. Secondly, one a lot of people don't like, but it's still very true, is friends and family. Friends and family can be a remarkable key, an aid, a tool for understanding ourselves. Turn to Second Samuel for what's going to be, I'm sure, a strange example. Second Samuel. And as we do so, let me just say that a lot of us, and I know I've done this myself, uh, when it comes to things our spouses think, our friends think about us, like, ah. Uh, they always say that. You know, oh, you're such, you're so and so. Why do you do this? Ah, oh, you, you always say that. And we just kind of dismiss those things sometimes. You know, if most of the people around us think something is true and we don't, it still might be true. I've used the example before and I don't mean to overuse it, but the bald spot, the very strangely shaped bald spot on the back of my head, I've never seen with my own eyes. I know it's there because I saw it in a mirror once and freaked me out. And I think I've mentioned that. I told my wife, honey, there's a, it's all, what's going on? She's like, oh, we know. It's okay. It's okay. We know. We know it's there. But I didn't know and it had been there for years. I felt it was thin. It was like, oh, kind of thin back there. I didn't think there was nothing, you know, in some of those places. And there are things. And if we're constantly dismissing, say, what a spouse says, what our parents say, even what our children say, you know, children, we all have to learn, right? But, you know, if we're constantly dismissing those things, we need to recognize that we're not good at understanding ourselves and they might be right. Friends and family, the fellowship we've been provided is given to us and can be a tool for understanding ourselves. Now, I turn to Second Samuel. This is not a happy occasion for David, but I, it's, it's always been illustrative to me. Second Samuel in chapter 16, and we'll begin in verse 5. It says, when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shimei, the son of Girah, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. Now, the scene is that David is fleeing from his son Absalom. Things have gone very poorly for the house of David. And he's fleeing from his own throne 
if you will. Things are not going well. And this fellow Shimei comes out and says, He threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and all the mighty men were on his right hand and his left. So Shimei said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Eternal has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul, in whose place you've reigned. And the Eternal has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you're caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Now, you have to understand, he's throwing rocks and such, but he, you know, he's not, his aim isn't perfect. He's hitting the guys around David too. And so one of them responds, verse 9. It says, Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please let me go over and take off his head. And let's be clear. Shimei is later executed under Solomon for this very thing. No one has the right to go up uh, to God's anointed and curse them like a dead, dirty dog. Oh, I'm picking on dogs today. Uh, but God takes that seriously. And Shimei, but God took advantage of Shimei's terrible attitude to say some things that he needed David to hear at the time. Because what was David suffering from? If you go back far enough, there was a bloodthirsty, in a sense, moment in his life. He did allow, actually, cause a man to be killed uh, for his own gain. And his house didn't work Quite right after that. So what is David? Here's the thing. How does David respond? Verse 10. The king said, what have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah? So let him curse because the eternal has said to him, curse David. Who then shall say, why have you done so? And he goes on to explain, don't you understand the circumstance I'm in? This is a time when I should be hearing testimony like this. It's not like things are just peaches and flowers and roses for me right now. I need to know things. And he didn't have this person who really was guilty of death, as we do find out later. And the reason this is instructive for me, because sometimes things come our way from people that hate us. People that insult us and tear us down. Could be a sibling, often the younger, you know, the worse. Uh, it could be a boss. It could be a coworker. And they're terrible things and they're ugly things. And the fact that maybe they're doing it in a sinful attitude and the, an attitude that God will hold that person accountable for because it's wrong doesn't mean that I might not need to listen. And the 75% of it that is just nasty, bitter, invective or, or personal ambition or hate or whatever it is Am I going to allow the 25% there that maybe I can benefit from, that maybe there's something there that I need to see? Are we going to allow that to pass? David didn't. And so it's not exactly friends or family. Shimei was a real jerk, uh, you know, here, and he wasn't supposed to do this. But if David can listen to Shimei, can I listen to my wife? Can I listen to my kids who are almost always wrong? But still, you know, can I listen to them? Can I listen to my parents? I think we should. Our friends and family are given to us as tools for self-examination. Uh, the last few I'm going to go through that much more quickly. Meditation. Meditation. In fact, feeding on that, if we don't take the time to think about the things we hear, we won't learn from them. A third tool is meditation. That's why one reason I used to love long drives when I was out in the field. I used to love long drives to visit church areas or a go-to or uh, those times. 
That's why I like to take long, luxurious showers. Uh, That's my excuse, not really. Uh, I like time when you're kind of busy doing something, but your mind is free, and it's an opportunity to, to turn things over. Not like Eastern meditation where the goal is to empty your brain. You empty your brain, some demon's going to find a nice clean room in which to take up occupancy. Uh, you want to fill your brain. You want to give it something to chew on. And meditation's a, a wonderful gift in that regard. And our society is distracting it in every way you can. I, I'll be honest, one of my, my biggest temptations right now, if I have a free moment, is Twitter. Man, I jump on that faster and I can blink an eye, you know. It's, oh, I wonder what's going on next, you know. I wonder who said something. Oh, look, look what this celebrity's doing. That's hilarious. Uh, I used to spend that time differently, and I want to make sure I'm spending it differently now. But meditation itself has to be fed by something as well, and that's the Bible. The Bible has given, been given to us as a tool for self-examination as well. We'll turn to Hebrews chapter 4. It's a remarkable description of the Bible in Hebrews chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12. We read, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, even to the division, sorry, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit and of joints and marrow. You know, if you look at a bone, there's the marrow that's obviously the marrow, and there's the bone part that's obviously the bone. But boy, it gets real fuzzy right there at the border, right? Where does the marrow start? It's like a watermelon. Which part is the rind that I don't want to eat? And which part is the yummy, delicious, sweet watermelon flesh I want to eat? Because you want to bite. It's like, oh, that looks like that might be the rind. It's kind of bitter. It's like, oh, I'm going to do it. Oh, yeah, that was a bitter rind. That wasn't, wasn't very good. He's saying the word of God is powerful enough to pierce through and even carve out those hard-to-make distinctions. He says at the end of that verse, it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. James, in the book of James, describes God's word and his law as a mirror. It's in James chapter 1. He describes it as a mirror. It says that God's law has been given to us so we can look into it and see ourselves. He says, don't be someone who looks into the mirror and finds something he needs to fix and just walk away. How many of us don't use the Bible as a mirror? We use it as a lens through which we examine others. It's tempting to do. It's always easier to examine others. When God's word describes it more as a mirror through which, if we're careful and we're diligent and willing, we can use to examine ourselves. Again, not just finding the bad, but finding the good. Sometimes we do something. I've been in places where I've actually done something good, but I felt kind of guilty about it. So I'm at least guilty of faith sin in that sense. I, I thought it was the wrong thing. And I look in the Bible later, if I know it was the right thing to do, well, I wish I'd read that earlier. You know, I wouldn't have gone against my conscience then, wish I'd have known. Right. But we need God's word to highlight those things to us and to make them plain. The last tool I'll mention before we conclude is fasting. Fasting. We need occasions where we are especially devoted to seeking the mind of God in a right perspective on ourselves. If you read the first volume of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's autobiography, he talks about his first fast. And he specifically says why he did it. It wasn't to try to force God's hand. He says it was to find out what was wrong with me. He writes in there. It was to find out what was wrong with me. Fasting adds a perspective to our self-examination. When you're hungry... 
it kind of reminds you, you're pretty much one breath away from just being a bunch of dirt again. Or you're one meal away. You might think, well, no, I can skip one meal. That's not the meal I'm talking about. It's the meal you never get. If the meal you never get ever arrives in your life, you're going to die. We have to have food to continue. And it's a reminder to us that we're not God. Rather, we need God. And fasting is a tool that God has given us to understand ourselves. If you find fasting intimidating, and a lot of people do, a lot of people do, feel free and use training wheels. It's okay. Sometimes we think, oh, it's got to be... A friend of mine said once, and I know it sounds strange, anything worth doing is worth doing poorly. Which is the opposite of what you normally hear. Anything worth doing is worth doing well. And that's also true. But his point was some people are so devoted they want to make sure they, they get it absolutely perfect. They never even begin. And if it's something that's truly worth progressing on, then it's worth an awkward start. Maybe you can skip a lunch. Sometimes people take an extended lunch. Take an extended anti-lunch. I remember something really pressing in my life once. It was something I was very concerned about. It was, it was uh, before I was in the ministry. And I, I was really concerned. I did not have the freedom to just spend a day. And honestly, fasting all day, I would have been doing a lot of spreadsheets and programming anyway. And I, but I, what I did, I determined I didn't take a lunch to work. And instead, during lunch, I went out to my car, my old beloved 72 Nova. I miss that car so much. And I, I remember because I was in the parking lot, I didn't really want to take the time to drive to a park. So I, I just <laughs> sort of squatted down on my knees between the driver's seat or the, the passenger seat and the, and the desk. I could fit back then. Between that, you know, in the glove compartment and just I hope someone didn't notice why is weird Wally sitting in the passenger seat of his own car, right? But I had my Bible there and I was able to give God not the attention he deserved, but more than I had been giving him. And I needed something. I needed to understand me better. That was important to me. And so training wheels, nothing wrong with training wheels. Training wheels are a step, right? So if fasting is intimidating, you know, just it's important to get started. You know, in conclusion, a famous saying of Jesus Christ known even out into the world is something he said, where he said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. It's in John chapter 8. You shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. You know, part of that truth to be known is the truth about you, the truth about me. You know, I... I want to quote Jordan Peterson just one more time. Something he said that, that I, I did really enjoy when I read it, even though it's a bit harsh. He says, the truth is something that burns. It burns off the dead wood. People do not like having their dead wood burn off, often because they're like 95% dead wood. And it was rough to read, but I liked it because it was true, at least of me. And we need that truth. You know, there's a freedom in seeing yourself truly and rightly. It's freedom from lies. It's freedom from illusion. And it's freedom to begin that walk toward the kingdom of God and toward a closer relationship with our Father rooted in a real knowledge of where we are. It's worth doing. It's worth seeing the truth. Because truly, that truth will make us free.